Welcome to the very first episode of Brain Health Breakthroughs, where we help you get smarter, think faster, remember more. I'm Peggy Sarlin, and I'm so happy to start off the new year with this new podcast so I can bring you breaking news from leading doctors and researchers who are changing our understanding of brain health. I've been writing books and producing video series about brain health for 10 years. And if you saw my series, Awakening from Alzheimer's and also Regain Your Brain, you know I love to bring you actionable information. That's what I love, actionable information. So you can upgrade your brain and your life. I'm also a health coach, so I know that when your brain is better, Everything is better. You're healthier, you're happier, you're smarter, you look better, you've got more energy and confidence. You really, really want to have a healthy brain. So I'm delighted for you to meet my first guest ever, Dr. Drew Ramsey, a nutritional psychiatrist and the author of Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Friends, we have all been through a really tough couple of years, and we've all been impacted by it. I certainly have. This is this has been tough. So isn't it great to start the new year with Dr. Ramsey here to empower us to feel massively better emotionally and mentally just by eating good food? Dr. Ramsey is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. He's the founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, and he's also a farmer. So Dr. Ramsey practices what he preaches. Hi, Dr. Ramsey. Welcome to Brain Health Breakthroughs, and thank you so much for joining our very first episode. Oh, thank you so much, Peggy. It's such a treat to be here, and uh, welcome to everyone who's listening. Let's 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 make some breakthroughs about brain health today. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, starting out with two questions: What's a nutritional psychiatrist, and why isn't every psychiatrist a nutritional psychiatrist? Good questions. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Drew Ramsey. I'm a nutritional psychiatrist. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably one of the original nutritional psychiatrists. And a nutritional psychiatrist, probably in its purest form, is someone who is thinking about mental health and nutrition. And I expect... I define it broadly because a lot of people end up speaking about mental health, whether you're a coach or a primary care doctor or a pastor or a teacher. And understanding some of the tools that we all have around nutrition that help us with our mental health, I think, is really important for anybody who's concerned about this. Um, I would say that most psychiatrists, every psychiatrist at their heart is a nutritional psychiatrist because I've been to the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting for a number of years presenting, and the room is packed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I say most psychiatrists would agree is that psychiatrists have a, a lot of biological training, and we believe in the biology of the mind and the, of the brain. And we all know that proper nutrition and food and lifestyle are at a core of taking care of those cells. Now, why, why don't all psychiatrists talk about food and do intakes like we do intakes? There's, there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. Um, I, I think like a lot of my colleagues in medicine, 
their plates are rather full with people who are really struggling. And that kind of primary prevention hasn't been part of our model in mental health. But a nutritional psychiatrist or nutritional psychiatry, as I've tried to define it, is the use of nutrition to optimize brain health, which I like because it it means all of us are in this game together. It's not this like one out of five of us have mental illness. Uh, I hate that statistic, right? Like we all have brains and none of us really got a lot of instruction or help in terms of how to feed them, how to nourish them, how to care mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And as well as uh, to continue the definition, it, it's the use of nutrition in the prevention and treatment of mental health disorders. I, I'm a psychiatrist every day. I really work hard to treat depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, PTSD, those the disorders that really psychiatrists tend to. Um, and there's a lot of data now about how food is involved with that, both in the prevention. There's been a lot of prevention data for a while, but really for the past four or five years have been a number of randomized trials that really show us some of the potential power of food if we harness it in a mental health clinical setting like we do in the brain food clinic. So it's really, it's a really exciting time to be talking to you and to be thinking both about both these things, right? How do we prevent mental health concerns? And, and if we have them, and a lot of us have them these days, because it's been such a hard time in, in, in our histories and in our personal lives for many of us. What do we, what do we do to, what are all the things we can bring to the game to best treat those mental health disorders? Well, that is surely the way to go to to bring the power of nutrition into helping people with their emotional health, their mental health. And so as a psychiatrist, you're working with people in the traditional ways of uh, of talking to them, talking about what's going on in their lives, and also, if need be, uh, using uh, prescribing drugs. But you're also, you have this additional tool in your toolbox that most other psychiatrists don't use, where you say, can you tell me what you ate for breakfast? Yep. Yep. I, I want to hear the whole day. I don't know why I'm in, but I like, I, and, I, and I want people to be Orient. You know, one of the things I've learned early in my career asking patients, I probably started asking patients a lot about food you know, during residency and then in that kind of early. So this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and you know, it surprised people at first. So like, uh, why, why are you, you know, I'm here to talk about like my mom and my depression. Why are you asking me about breakfast? And, <laughs> and so I, I first, okay, in some ways kind of asked permission a little bit of, of letting people know, Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this. There's a lot of data. Can we talk a little bit about? what you eat. And I think I also try to set up the conversation. People who've heard about my work, you know, they think I like live on kale chips, like brain food smoothies <laughs> and like wild salmon shooters. <laughs> and so to, to, you know, somehow signal like I, I'm an eater too. And it's one of the things I like about food, something similar to the pandemic for those of us who are in mental health practice and working with patients. Uh, the pandemic has forced us to be in the midst of something. We're experiencing a trauma at the same time our patients are. And so that's, that's been different than anything else most clinicians have ever, ever experienced. Unless you've been a local mental health provider, there's been a, you know, a natural, maybe a disaster or something in your community for sure than you have experienced. But in terms of something global, we've never had anything like this. And, and food is a similar thing in the sense that you, we're all in it together. Like we also eat every day. We also have carb cravings. We, you know, uh, I've you know, tried to get brain nutrition into my kids, just like my patients are. And so to use those moments, where we are very much in the sort of same thing as ways to connect and create alliance with patients and with individuals that we're working with. I just think it's a, it's one of the really nice powers of, of food. 
Well, you mentioned what a tough time it's been, and it surely has. And so that's why I think your book, I want to uh, talk about your book, A to B Depression and Anxiety. And, and given what you were just saying about the unprecedented nature of this time and the uh, the mental and emotional and spiritual and psychological pressures we're all under, this book is so timely. And I just wanted to note from my perspective, because I've been reporting on cognitive health for uh, 10 years, and I think a lot of our audience is interested in that, that from my perspective, everything we're about to discuss here that you recommend as helpful, both protective and to improve depression and anxiety and other mental struggles. It's also very good for your cognitive health to, to prevent dementia, to, to optimize cognition. Do you agree? That's exactly right, Peggy. And they're very linked in the data. We know individuals who have depression and chronic depression are at increased risk for dementia. We also understand both of these illnesses have a lot to do with inflammation and, and potentially with chronic inflammation. Maybe not for all patients, but certainly for a lot of patients. You know, uh, there's certainly been interesting data this year coming out about looking at things that we didn't used to look at in, in psychiatry. Right now, I think about things like a CRP, a blood marker of inflammation, when I work up and think about an individual with depression. We, we didn't. Use to do that. We now think about the microbiome. You know, we didn't used to do that. So these are exciting ways that by tending to your mental health and, and then what all the benefits are of that in terms of protecting your, your cognitive health. So tending to your mental health in your 30s, 40s, and 50s means you're building community, you're building connections, you're deepening love and relationships, you're uh, you know, working in some capacity to achieve a sense of purpose and self. Are all these core tenets of uh, mental fitness and mental health. We, we focus a lot of these in our course healing the modern brain, right? But what is it that we should do to take care of our mental health? So we experience a lot of that in our early life as, you know, anxiety and depression, that, that if we don't lead an active lifestyle, if we're not pursuing goals and achieving them, it, it's hard for us as humans to kind of stay upbeat. And it puts us at much more risk for mental health disorders like depression and anxiety. And, and, and so taking care of your mental health, I think is key to taking care of your cognitive health. Just one other point in that piggy is that cognitive health and mental health aren't, you know, we often separate depression and dementia, but it's just really important to note most patients who have significant clinical depression have extreme cognitive deficits. It's very frustrating. You don't think as clearly. You're facing all these stressors. You're feeling horrible. And, oh, the brain's just not firing like it used to. You don't feel creative or spontaneous or ambitious or motivated. All those things that, you know, exactly when you need it because you're feeling so badly. It's where depression is such a, a pernicious and, and challenging illness to treat and, and, and for people to have. Um, it, it, and you can understand how that over time really puts individuals in a situation where they're putting themselves at more risk for cognitive health disorders later on with dementia, but also just, I, I guess, to make the point in their forties and fifties, I often meet patients who have depression. They're like, Oh, like I'm, I'm worried I'm getting dementia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have an untreated or mm -hmm. undertreated depression. And once they get tuned up and their depression's in fully in remission, their cognitive health really comes back fully online. But we know, we know that doesn't happen with the antidepressant medications as much as, as we would like. Well, I, I thought it was very interesting in your book. You said that if you look at images of people, brain images of people with depression, their hippocampus is often shrunken. It's smaller, about 20% smaller 
and, and also the, there's a correlation, a correlational data of, by Felice Jack looking at dietary pattern that specifically the, the left hippocampus is uh, significantly lower. Like it's, it's several cubic millimeters smaller. So, you know, something you can almost see in, in terms of a smaller size. And what's interesting is when the shrinkage happens, this study was looking at individuals just from 60 to 64 mm-hmm. and found a statistically significant difference just in five years at the rate of brain shrinkage based on dietary patterns. So that's, that's a really exciting. It's exciting because you can do something about right. it. It's empowering. <laughs> I remember we learned, you know, in medical school, like, yeah, you know, you hit the 50s, human brain just starts shrinking for everybody. You know, and you kind of, as a young person, are like, ooh, that sounds bad. And then, and then you know, start seeing some of the great minds around you start to, you know, when they're underslept or when they had a little too much to drink, just, you know, kind of not be as sharp. And and then, you know, is, is, uh, it, it's just a challenging thing to see the human brain age. You also see people, so many people, who really keep on it. Uh, we're here new, in a new community where there's a lot of focus on activity and physical activity. And my, my wife just went to an exercise class and she said, you know, everybody in the class was 70, <laughs> but they, it was this kind of movement class. She's like, but the way they moved was incredible. If you just watch them move, they were so strong and graceful, like, like no, no other kind of elderly population that she'd seen. And, and, and you can hear the kind of intention in that. And I think that that's where so many people, as they're thinking about cognitive health and physical health, are really much more ambitious and much more motivated. I think it's where Peggy, your work has been so helpful to so many people trying to say, you know, I don't want to just sit here and watch my brain shrink. <laughs> I want to I want to do things about it. I want to be engaged in the process. That's it. That's the empowering message to start the new year. So uh, we're going to talk about how people can be empowered by what's at the end of their fork. But I, I just want to mention uh, that uh, it, your, your comment about the, how the hippocampus is shrunken in people with depression. And, of course, the hippocampus is where Alzheimer's starts and it is characterized by by loss of volume in that area. So we see this crossover. And uh, you also mentioned brains that aren't healthy, that are subject to depression, anxiety, and other kind of mental problems uh, are often inflamed. Again, another characteristic of certain types of Alzheimer's brains. So everything you are going to tell, you're about to tell us and we're about to learn from you is going to help us protect our, our, our ability to, uh, to stay smart. And I also think that that's if we really get to the root of it of trying to decrease stigma around mental illness, you know, if I'm a guy who treats depression and anxiety, like eh, people, I'm not sure people want to say they, they see me, right? It's like when you hit rock bottom, you go see the psychiatrist. I think it's just a horrible way for us to think about mental health care and our own brain health. If we think that we're all blessed with this like incredible gift, you know, like, like beyond a thoroughbred racehorse. I mean, this is like <laughs> the most complex, wonderful thing. It dreams, it creates, it sings, it makes music, it cooks, it loves, it has second. What a cool thing, the human brain. And that we're all really engaged with trying to use the latest science to take care of it. I just, I really like that idea of, of uh, because you're right. These conditions all do interrelate. We could also tie in diabetes and obesity Absolutely. and so many of the conditions and addiction that the individuals in America and around the world are struggling with. And this notion that we could really get motivated, especially by the, the, the potential of our brains, you know, things that people in their fifties, sixties and seventies, as they begin to get concerned often about cognitive health, you know, these are, 
the wisest individuals in our society. They've, they've been through most of a life. They've loved, they've birthed, they've, they've had careers. They've had multiple careers often. They've mm-hmm. had kids, they've had grandkids, right? I mean, this is like, when it comes to sitting with the life and, and, and making sense of it, uh, it's such a, a gift for us to think about how can we preserve that? How can we get more of that? How can we help our communities and our society really benefit from all the wisdom that we have? Yeah, wisdom. We could use some more of that. All right. Let's get people, let's get people excited, uh, and empowered to start the new year by eating in a brain healthy way. And so you in a cup. Is this, is this when I say dark chocolate, Peggy? Dark chocolate. <laughs> We're going to get to that because I, I really want to make, we'll get to the recipes. I wouldn't really want to make your recipe for, chocolate brain truffles. (laughs) Chocolate brain truffles are great. I love the chocolate brain truffles. I love if you're a chocolate eater, the buckwheat cacao pancakes. Those are, those are a hit. It's a great way to get cacao into kids. It gets them a little amped up, but it's a good time. Uh, Yeah. Train your kids to eat healthy. Right. Okay. So you and a colleague created the world's first antidepressant food scale, which I think is kind of like Edison and his light bulb. I mean, why did nobody ever figure out what the what the nutrients are that we need to stave off depression? So can you tell us what are the 12 key nutrients that we need for, for mental health? For sure. So let's talk about some of the nutrients and just to tell everyone a little bit of where the antidepressant food scale is. Dr. Laura Lachance is my colleague and she actually was a resident, came up to me at the American Psychiatric Association and, and we decided to collaborate. We started creating a manual to teach clinicians how to talk about food. And then we thought, you know, how are all of our, you know, academic colleagues going to look at this? They're going to say, well, why are you guys picking these foods? Right. And we're going to scratch our heads and we're going to say something like, oh, they're, they're kind of on the Mediterranean diet. And they're going to look at us and say, really? Like wild salmon and blueberries are on the uh, Mediterranean diet. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. And we're going to say, Oh boy. And so we thought, what, what can we do to create more thinking mostly uh, thinking around what foods are good for mental health and brain health? And so this wasn't an exhaustive list, but we went into the scientific literature. We found 12 nutrients. They're nutrients that, that everyone listening who cares about brain health knows have vitamin B12, folate, magnesium, iron. Uh, we have long chained omega three fats on the list. Zinc is on the list. I already say magnesium. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that we couldn't figure out how to put on the list that matter. Like, <laughs> well, because you, you, you interested in fermented foods, probably for interested in brain health. Yes. I was going to bring up fermented we, we foods. We tried to do you. that yeah. and figure out how to phytonutrients would be another one. Again, not a lot of evidence. And, and so we really tried to just stay very evidence-based. There's a a way that you can rank evidence. And we said, you know, which nutrients of all of the vitamins and minerals out there that are essential to human health in the scientific literature have uh, a signal that they have an impact on the prevention of depression. So let's take something like zinc. So if a population doesn't eat enough zinc, more of that population gets depressed. Same thing with iron. If you look at folks with anemia, they have more depression. And, And it makes sense on a biological level. You look at individuals who have low B12, same thing. They get depression, they get dementia. And so, and then we were very straightforward and simple about it. Nutrient profiling systems basically try to take all the good stuff you want in food and divide it by all the bad stuff you don't want in food. And we thought about this a little bit differently as mental health professionals. We were just after these 12 nutrients and we said, what are the top natural sources of them per, per calorie? 
And so the antidepressant food scale created this list of antidepressant foods. And, and we looked at both plant and animal foods. One of the challenges with nutrient profiling systems is because they only focus on calories, meat, fish, nuts, beans, uh, they don't make the list because they have more calories. And, and also 98% of the planet eats meat. Um, that's going to continue, I would say, if we do it right forever. Uh, but there's a lot of nutrition in meat. And, and because all of my patients are meat eater, most of them are, I think it's really important to talk about what products, seafood, meat products, which of those have the most of these nutrients. If you're after B12, like what has the most? And what's so interesting, nobody really knows the answer to that. Mm. Like, yeah, I talk to doctors, I talk to patients, I talk to lots of smart, smart wellness warriors. And you say, like, well, you know, let's just think about food instead of thinking about supplement. Like what food has the top you know, top source of vitamin B12. I mean, that's the most important nutrient for dementia or DHA, like the two nutrients most clearly related to brain shrinkage and the risk of dementia are the long chain omega-3 fat, DHA, which you're going to find in, well, hold on, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to let everybody just think, and, <laughs> and vitamin B12. And if you ask, you know, lots of folks, including physicians, hey, it's top source of that. It's number one. You'd think we'd all know it. Like we'd learned sometime in fourth or fifth grade, like, hey, there are these special nutrients. You've always got to eat them or take them in supplement form or your brain breaks, like full on breaks. And it, it is that serious with some of these nutrients. Uh, so the top source natural world of vitamin B12 are clams. And if you look at it, three of the top animal sources, they're bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters. And then you look historically how humans are connected to those foods. You look at the nutrients in those foods. You look at how some of those foods like define nutrient density, like oysters are the kale of the animal world or the leafy green of the animal world because you get so much nutrition per calorie. And, and, and on the plant side, if we looked, Hey, what are the plants? What the top 10 were all leafy greens, like herbs and leafy greens and peppers. Peppers. And I think pomelo uh, was high up on the list. So. <laughs> You know, if you look at that, those top 10, that's mostly water with some phytonutrients and some vitamins and minerals and, and a little bit of fiber. So, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of things that were um, not in the top 20 of these two food groups. And we really mostly wanted to create a beginning step, a list that says, hey, from the most fundamental basic nutritional psychiatry perspective that exists in the data right now, what are the foods and, and, and what this title is, what are the food groups? Because if you're talking wild salmon, that's great. Some people don't like wild salmon. So what's that mean? No omega-3s for you? That doesn't work. Or what if you are like our household? You're crushing your wild salmon game like once a week, once a week, <laughs> once a week. That gets old. What are your other sources of long-chain omega-3 fats? And so that's where it's been really fun for me as a, I don't know, physician and creative person to really think with patients and with my team, how do we help people diversify? How do you motivate people? How do you get something going in your home that really is part of your mental health care plan, part of you taking care of your brain. So, so you, you've given us a lot to think about. So just to, to recap uh, what we've uh, learned so far, uh, what you eat, the quality of the food you eat has an enormous impact on your mental health, on your ability to live uh, happily and healthily and function at your peak cognitively, even when you're under stress, as we all are now. The quality of your food is fundamental to your brain health. So we've learned yeah. that. We've and I think during stress is when you have the greatest opportunity to use nutritional psychiatry. 
Because right. that's the time we'll get like, like now uh, it's, it's sort of when there's a, you know, in some ways, some of the most challenges, right? Well, the, the side effects, as opposed to medications, which have side effects, the side effects of eating healthy are your entire health gets better. Uh, your weight stabilizes or optimizes. You look better. <laughs> you know, it's, even, actually, it's even more than that. The SMILES trial, which was one of the, it's the original trial, the that was really designed to study the notion that a diet could be used to treat clinical depression in a clinical setting. And so this study looked at 67 individuals, followed them for 12 weeks, gave them seven dietary counseling sessions. And what they found is a third of these individuals, and most of them were when were in some treatment, they're either on medicine or, or they were in therapy. So they were mostly getting better, but not all the way better. A full third of those patients went into full remission. Full and, remission. And so, full remission. And that is the holy grail in mental health. Like, I'm, I'd lo- I love getting people better. Any step better is good. Like, if I, you know, points on the board are good when you're battling depression and anxiety. But what we really want, you know, I want you to say, like, yeah, I don't have any symptoms anymore. I feel great. That's, that's the holy grail. And, and it's reflected in brain imagery. The, the improvements of uh, nutrition are reflected. Well, the edge right now of, of I would say, uh, depression research, nutritional science, the microbiome. Uh, one of my favorite colleagues doing this work is Dr. Jeff Miller at Columbia Psychiatry. Uh, some of his results are to, coming out. I, I can't reveal them, but what they're discovering, they have a specific marker for inflammation in the brain they're using. They're tying it to the microbiome and to very specific symptoms of depression. It, it's, 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 uh, I think what we hope for that, you know, certainly I always want to be an evidence-based physician. I think there's a lot of hype and misinformation in the field of nutrition and brain health, but it, it's really, it's really exciting what's happening right now. I, I'm so delighted to hear that. So, so, to, so to recap, we, we know that we can profoundly, uh, self-nourish our brains through healthy food choices. We know that you and your colleague have uh, have defined the 12 key nutrients with things like, and, and I was noticing things on your uh, list like zinc and omega-3s are uh, essential for good immune support too. So that's something we're, you know, we're all worried about our immune system and, and they provide that function as well. As are the fermented foods, probably the most exciting data about immune function and food. Certainly zinc is important. These nutrients are important. But, uh, I, uh, Christopher Gardner and, and, uh, Heather Wastick's study on the, uh, his Lisa Wastick, uh, uh, on fermented foods, very small study, but really was the first data I've seen that eating a lot of fermented foods on a daily basis really shifts immune function, shifts microbiome diversity in a way that just eating plants doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot to uh, also our immune function that has to do with how we feel. We know that when people are more depressed, their immune systems tend to go down. And everyone with depression, doesn't matter whether you're eating the best food, your um, uh, inflammatory factors go up. Interleukin-6, one of the inflammatory factors that we measure, there's a great uh, data set, the Chianti data set looking at the Mediterranean diet. And, and their data set really suggests that one of the ways this works is that when individuals get depressed, the Mediterranean diet... Uh, protects them, buffers mm-hmm. some of that effect. So instead of getting a big spike in a leukin six, you get, you get a smaller bump. And so I, I do think that there is this huge connection between brain health and mental health and in our immune status in a very kind of bi-directional way. I, I just 
want to inject something personal, if I may, which is that I am so grateful that I have been doing this work as a journalist so that I know how to protect my brain because uh, I've just had such a, a rough decade, uh, such a terrible uh last two years, such a brutal year this year. I'll just say very briefly, nine years ago, my husband had a massive stroke and uh, was left permanently disabled. And so I've just been under extraordinary stress. But I had just, he happened to have the stroke just after I had written this book, Awakening from Alzheimer's, about brain health, and I knew how to protect myself uh, as I was under this extraordinary attack of uh, circumstance in my own life. And then the last two years with COVID, like everybody else, I've had my circumstances. My husband was in a nursing home, and um, as Many people may know that our governor in New York put in COVID patients into nursing homes. And uh, anyway, it was very stressful. My my husband eventually passed away. And I've known how to eat throughout all these uh, terrible times to protect myself. So uh, I feel good. I feel healthy. I've been able to keep working, to keep motivated. When I get down, I know how to bring myself up. But I always eat in exactly the manner that you recommend people because I know it works. I, I don't like to think of the shape I would be in living through what I've lived through if I just didn't know what to do. And most people don't know what to do. Well, uh, Peggy, thank you so much for you know sharing uh, openly about what you've been struggling with. I think it's it's so important for all of us to do more of that. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I think now gr- grief is so complicated right now, and and so many individuals uh, have lost family members. Hundreds of thousands of kids are, are without a parent. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are without a spouse, and it's just and all of the ways that we usually cope with that. We have a funeral. We go to church. Mm-hmm. We cry. We hug. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, we don't follow all the brain food roles for a big wake, mm-hmm. um, or, or however you process um, having that structure. Just going to work and coming back and knowing that time passes and it gets a little easier. But people don't have that either, and it's just it's uh, for anyone like Peggy who's grieving. It's brain food is certainly part of some insulation, but also there's just, you know, the very hard work of sitting with those feelings and, and processing them. Mm-hmm. And then the, I think sometimes what you said, Peggy, kind of quickly, right. And then you know what to do to get yourself up again. It, you know, when I talked earlier about wisdom, right, that that's something a lot of people don't know how to do, right. Because that usually isn't based on what we usually, usually we're kind of doing things because we have to, or because we feel we should. And when you're not feeling well in your mental health, you feel low energy, not motivated, you don't have ambition. You don't have enjoyment of what you're about to do. So the idea like, yeah, I'm going to go exercise is like, ugh, there's <laughs> none of that pizzazz that usually motivates mm-hmm. us, right? Right. And so it becomes so hard to, you know, for individuals who have a plan, as you're saying, to, to I would say it's hard, but it requires such discipline. Say, you know, however I feel, I'm going to eat well today. Yeah. You know, however I feel, I'm going to move my body today. However mm-hmm. I feel uh, as down or as hopeless, I'm going to have a, take care of myself, have a nice bath, get a good, good early bedtime, get a good night's sleep. It's, it's, um, you know, just as some of the basic moves that, that we can do to care for our mental health during times of challenging times of grief, like now. Thank you for those kind words, doctor. And I, 
do want to say, after my husband had the stroke and when I went to various doctors um, for various things, um, they automatically, this happened at least two times that I remember, they ended uh, our session by... Uh, by writing me a prescription for antidepressants. I had never asked for such a thing. There's probably a good study, Peggy, that says putting everyone with a, a, a spouse with a stroke on an antidepressant probably has some positive outcome. Uh, I've seen that. I don't say that jokingly. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't doubt there's some data out there supporting some of those things, just in the sense that as a public health intervention, it's kind of strange. I, I would say we probably want people more inclined to at least talk about it and do something than not. But I think so often people have experiences like you did, where it's like, it's not really explained so much of like, hey, this is really important because, you know, Zoloft is an anti-inflammatory and you're going to be really stressed out. It's going to be super hard. We think based on these studies, it's something you should consider at a low dose. Uh, that Peggy, you might be interested in is something that might protect your brain, but it's, you know, Zoloft or, or other antidepressants, I have no affiliation with any of these just to tell everybody I, uh, but um, uh, people don't, you know, get, uh, how do I put, there's so much stigma around the medicines as well that people don't get the information that like, hey, a lot of these medicines are profoundly powerful central anti-inflammatories. And so if you are struggling with inflammation, you know, it, it's not that, oh boy, you're so depressed, you need an antidepressant. It might be, you know, some things in your diet. It also might be that you have the kind of biology that's just going to do better on an antidepressant um, or during a period in your life, you know, you need it. And it's really, it's a, it's a fine tool that's so effective that's been applied kind of bluntly. Yeah, I, I felt that that was a blunt tool. And I never filled those prescriptions. And I chose to do what I'd learned how to do through my Reporting, I chose to nourish myself with good food. Peggy, since we're talking about antidepressants, I want to talk about food, but I think because everyone listening cares about Alzheimer's disease and they're going to be Googling around and a lot of people uh, in our age group, uh, let's say 40s plus, right, are just, you know, going to have some mental health challenges as we struggle with things like illnesses that our spouses have or illnesses we have or uh, you know, uh, the, the challenges of midlife, let's call it. We know midlife is the most dangerous time for men when it comes to suicide risk. 70% mm. of completed suicides are white men over the age of 45. Uh, mm. So uh, in, in terms of thinking about like midlife and how to take care of it, people are going to see this statistic or how to take care of our brains. People will see the statistic that uh, taking antidepressants have an increase, increases the risk or correlate with an increased risk of getting dementia. And I only bring this up not to be pro-medication, it's just to point out to people what a false statistic that is. Because the first step in medicine, if you present and you're struggling with your memory, we have a condition called pseudodementia. And pseudodementia mm -hmm. is when people have depression, but they present looking like they have dementia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when you see somebody pop out of this, everybody's so relieved. So you get put on an antidepressant. And a lot of people who get put on antidepressants are a little more relaxed or a little brighter in their mood as reported by Peter Kramer and listening to Prozac. So where the phrase cosmetic pharmacology came from right before, before everybody was excited about microdosing and how that would improve, you know, their mental health or, or a lot of these other things, people were excited about the antidepressants in terms of how they could maybe brighten mood. So all to say that individuals end up staying on that medicine. So if you have a dementia, you get put on it, you stay on it. 
And then a dementia comes. It doesn't prevent the dementia, but it's not clear in any way that it causes the dementia. And I just want people to be really careful about that statistic and caring of your mental health. Not that I'm encouraging meds, but just I always want people to feel that they have every option available to them and they're free to choose. And I don't think that's what happens these days with a lot of these things. Well, I appreciate you're giving us a more balanced view. And I also think you just made the case for why we need many more nutritional psychiatrists. <laughs> we right, need- <laughs> great if we, if we great if we really radically change diet, especially, gosh, we look at some of these populations with the data, Peggy, college students, there's this amazing trial where they gave them nuts, nut butter, olive oil, the spices, cinnamon and turmeric. They showed them a 13 minute video which they basically said, like, eat more plants, you know, use the olive oil, like, take care of your mental health with food. They had a five-minute phone call. And after that, another week passed. They had another five-minute phone call. They got some recipes. These kids had massive reductions in their formal depression, anxiety, and stress rating scores. And it lasted for six months, the length of the study. Wow. Wow. You know, that that makes me think of an article in uh, our newsletter, Brain Health Breakthroughs, uh, which reported about a new study that showed that the younger you are, when you get type 2 diabetes, the greater uh-huh. your risk of getting Alzheimer's or another dementia. And because we have such a profound crisis going on of obesity, poor eating and resultant obesity and resultant and uh, type 2 diabetes among younger and younger populations, we have all younger people getting increasingly at risk for, uh, well, also, for dementia. The, you know, up to doubling the risk of mental health disorders like depression and anxiety. So as individuals gain central adiposity, struggle with obesity, then struggle with blood sugar control and prediabetes, it's very clear that individuals are at significantly increased risk of depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders, addiction as well. And and the reason makes sense, right? Suddenly you're young, but you're sick. You've got to be taking your blood sugars. You've got to be going to the doctor all the time. You're probably having to start medications. It's um, in addition to all of the physiological effects that individuals with obesity and diabetes tend to have much higher levels of inflammation, adipose tissue, especially visceral adipose tissue, the you know, belly fat, but the, the organs that's uh, the fat that is around our organs is it's metabolically active tissue. So it's, it's increasing inflammation for individuals. So that, that's why, you know, it is a great concern, Peggy. And, and it's, you know, as, as people, um, you know, are increasingly linking the what's called diabetes epidemic um, to uh, dementia. We also want to link that to depression because uh, that's also one of the barriers for people getting better. And it's really, it's like hard to, you know, lose weight. It's hard to exercise. It's hard to get your sleep hygiene going if you're feeling really depressed and anxious, like because those are primary symptoms of those disorders, right? If I'm depression, what do I do to your sleep? I like mess it up, make it unsatisfying, take away your energy. I mean, it's just, it's it's the really pernicious, difficult illnesses for people to have. Yeah. So you want to get people off the vicious cycle and onto the virtuous cycle. And one of the most efficient interventions is, as you put it, at the end of your fork. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's the biggest lever we can pull. I mean, we 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 we're, we have a, a big course coming out all about mental fitness and. And, and I love all the pieces in there, but you know, the nutrition part to me feels just like one of the most powerful tools because we just, we do it every day. 
you know, every morning you're making a choice about your brain health. And I don't, I don't say that to freak people out or, you know, overemphasize or say it's the only thing that you're going to do or the only thing you need for your mental health. I mean, I hope, I hope people hear my balanced message, but boy, just like the power of that is so exciting because it's, it's every day. It's you know, every I'm asking, day. <laughs> well, I'm asking people to exercise. It's not every day. It's like some folks, I'm just like, please ride your bike before I see you next week. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's not a, it, it, but boy, every day those patients are eating. Every day we're making these choices. So it does, it, it does really excite me about the power in terms of, you know, of levers we can pull. Cause there's only so many levers, right? We can move our bodies. We can protect our sleep. We can, we can eat well. Mm -hmm. Um, some folks are going to struggle with inflammation and, and diabetes type one or obesity because of genetics or, you know, a lot of other factors that often, you know, are or feel out of people's control. So it, it's, um, you know, I don't want to, uh, have people think it's just like, Hey, eat better. Uh, and everything's right. But it does feel like one of those things. If you're getting that part right. What I, it's like you're, you're really keeping your side of the street clean when it comes to your health, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that I think that really says something. I think it says something to your health care providers. I think it says something to your family and your community. And, and, and I, you know, I know lots of individuals personally and professionally with chronic illnesses. And it just really impresses me, some of them, how they just they keep their side of the street so clean. And by that, I mean, they just really lead a lifestyle that actively fights their illness, contributes to their treatment plan. It, it really, I think, keeps their, their mental health in a good spot because they're doing things. You know, they're not the victim of a chronic illness. They're someone who's, who's battling for their health. And, and as you said, switching to that more virtuous mindset is, is a very um, important part of if, if you're struggling with your health and you're listening to that, of achieving it. And so really, you know, it's that, that mental um, pivot that really needs to happen for a lot of people. Well, that's that's the power of the leverage, as you say, of, of food. So let's give people some leverage. So we know that there are 12 key nutrients uh, that are particularly protective against depression. Uh, and here are the let's let's let people know the categories that if you're eating regularly from these categories that uh, Dr. Ramsey has so kindly laid out in his book, uh, you, you are going to get the maximum protection from nutrients. So our categories, first one, leafy greens. Tell us about leafy greens. And I happen to know you have a torrid love affair going on with kale. Yeah, it's true. Uh, sunflower sprouts have moved in, new, new green in town. It's like, kind of, it's kind of, I mean, sunflower sprouts are hard to resist. So kale's gotten a little jealous. People have also had a lot of kale backlash. So, you know, kale's going to make a comeback, but I saw something about like, uh, you know, uh, uh, baby Rome, baby cause, like sometimes, I mean, there's, there's a lot. Everybody's after kale. <laughs> leafy greens are more than kale is the first thing for people to hear from me. And leafy greens are more than salads. I think where people really struggle, I love the salad movement. I love all the big salad chains. I think that's been incredible in terms of leafy greens being consumed and people having healthy options. I, I, I've just loved watching that, that movement explode. Uh, but leafy greens give us a few things. One, they give us uh, a lot of water. And that one of the reasons we have this recommendation for people to drink so much water is that people don't eat water anymore because you don't eat plants. Plants are 90%, 95% water. Mm -hmm. and so I love leafy greens because they're always hydrating. It's a nice fiber for feeding the microbiome. Um, plants tend to have good amounts of magnesium, vitamin B9. These are, these are some of the antidepressant nutrients. Um, and usually we're eating leafy greens with other stuff. 
Um, so this is where sauteed greens, right, where you break them down a little bit, uh, uh, that makes some of the minerals much more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, dropping greens in your soups and stews. I drop greens all the time in my pastas. Probably pesto is one of my favorite ways to consume greens. I chew ton of kale and basil. I would say almost on a weekly basis. I like to make a, you know, maybe not weekly, every couple of weeks, big batch of pesto and kind of eat on that for a, a few days. Also really great to freeze pesto and, and eat, do eat depression and anxiety. Actually, I have a pesto formula because people often think pesto is like, ah, pine nuts and like basil. It's like garlic, olive oil. Like that's all great, but you can also do it out of like pistachios, radicchio, mm. uh, you know, all kinds of mm. uh, this radicchio. I did the audio book for you to be depression and anxiety. Radicchio is how you say that. I didn't know that until I did the audio book. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, um, I make pesto out of all kinds of wonderful things. I, I put a lot of walnuts in there usually. So leafy greens, great brain food category. Also keep you full again, because the fiber, it's sort of a satiating food. And as I said, you mix it up with stuff. Like my favorite combo is if I can get greens and small fish, I'm like, I'm like high-fiving myself. That's like amazing brain food. <laughs> well, we're getting to uh, to the fish category. So we've got leafy greens, which is kale and beyond, and which combines well with other things, as you've told us. Then we've got rainbow fruits and vegetables, which you sometimes call brainbow. Rainbows, and tell, right? Tell, tell look, us about that. Well, you know, I, I was like, tell me, I want you all to tell me about your rainbows, which is look down at your plate and just what do you see? You know, do you see that beige, just as beige or do you see a bunch of colors? And can you bump up the colors? Last night, my wife made potato soup, super healthy thing, full of potassium. I need a lot of potassium. And I'm looking there and I'm like, okay, like one, this isn't going to look that good on Instagram. Sorry, that's just my reality. <laughs> but two, like, I just always think I, I want more color in there. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I've, I had a little lacinato kale, chopped it up. I need more color in there. Got a little red pepper thought about chopping up. I forgot to, but you know, where I'm trying to kind of, even with the soup, right? Add in colors, colors equal phytonutrients, phytonutrients. We we call them antioxidants, Peggy. I don't think that's fair to phytonutrients. They're more signaling molecules. The actual, you know, like the most powerful antioxidant in your brain are the ones that you make, but, but these phytonutrients, they signal things like, um, uh, quercetin, sulfurophane, Mm -hmm. our, our cells and our DNA literally respond to them, ranging from things like some of the flavanols and dark chocolate, which, increase uh, the production of some of the the brain growth factors that we like to focus on in our clinic, like BDNF, mm-hmm. just this idea that um, we can, you know, help maybe tilt the tables, tilt the scales towards brain growth and brain health with these nutritional choices. So that's where rainbows fit in. And also just when you're doing that, when you're getting natural color in your plates, it also means you're bumping up fiber because plants are always going to come with fiber. So certainly, you know, along with the leafy greens and those rainbows, we're thinking about those Brussels sprouts, all those cruciferous vegetables, uh, the peppers, again, top on the antidepressant food scale. So I I personally find for myself that uh, eating a high fiber way is just the most satisfying way. My, My scale broke about two years ago and Mm -hmm. I didn't replace it. And I just don't worry about it. I eat, as you describe, I get high fiber. I'm satisfied. I'm full. I don't have cravings. It's just not an issue if you're eating this. So I, one thing I, I just and want to say, Peggy, carbs sort of also don't become an issue if you eat in this way because you're eating crunchy, mostly non-starchy, 
uh, carbohydrates, slower burning carbohydrates, where you're always getting those sugars that, you know, all plants are made of sugars, right? right. I mean, avocados have lots of protein and fat. Nuts have a little bit of protein and some fat. But most plants that we're eating, you know, you're ma mainly eating carbs. And the more you get those fibrous, crunchy vegetables in there, those are slower burning carbs. You're not going to have a blood sugar spike. You're um, you're not going to kind of switch into fat storage mode as much, it's just a much healthier way. And as you're saying, like, you feel full, you don't feel this like wonky blood sugar. It's great. Yeah. You don't have cravings. You just feel satisfied. It's a probably many people listening to this have never really felt fully nourished. You don't know the difference until you eat this way for a while. Yeah. You know, and Peggy, I would probably spend that and say like all of us, all of us at most points in our life, you need to regularly step back and think about what that means to us. You know, like, like I mean, it's like it was almost like a mantra that we should, uh, you know, pull out of this episode. Am I fully nourished? Am I fully because nourished? Because that really, that really expands the idea, you know, beyond food, right? But allows us to sit that oftentimes, especially when we're not feeling well, we're not. We haven't sat down with ourselves. We haven't made a nice meal. We haven't focused on these nutrients. We've been, you know, whatever, too busy, too much on the phone, too stressed out, too sad. And, 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 and I love that idea of, I don't know. I, that's how I felt. I didn't eat any fish till I was 30, Peggy. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I like scratched my head. I was like, all this data's coming out. I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> like, can't exactly walk in the talk here, farm boy, when you're like, yeah, when the seafood comes out. And I didn't force myself, but I just started slowly, you know, talk to a couple of chef friends. Hey, these things sound good for you. I feel like I'm a baby in terms of being a, an eater. Uh, you know, and, and had great, great recommendations to start with some light, mild fish, which actually wasn't great for me. I don't eat a lot of that, but kind of expanded my palate, realized I actually liked sushi, which is you know, something I kind of knew, but had never really explored and had a healthy relationship with. And then started kind of creeping into things that are a little, you know, now regular part of my diet, but then challenging anchovies, oysters, mussels really became a big part of our diet. So you know, uh, to, to say, I think all of us asking, hey, how can we be fully nourished is a great question. It is a great question. Uh, we've got leafy greens, rainbow fruits and vegetables, seafood, which you've told us contains that B12 and the omegas and all kinds B12, of good things. B12, omega-3 fats, and then a bunch of the plus. The small fish in cans is what I challenge everybody. When was the last time you opened up a can of anchovies or sardines and made yourself uh, like a pasta con sardine? I make uh, the... My favorite uh, uh, time, uh, sort of media, I don't know, talks, whatever, virtual things during the pandemic for the Aspen Brain Institute, we cooked up some gnocchi, gnocchi, gnocchi a la Glenda. Uh, and it has uh, sardines, pine nuts, garlic, a little bit of tomato sauce, mm. just as, and it's so delicious oh, on top of gnocchi. So I'm going to be hungry after this talk. <laughs> okay. Good. So that be my, that's my brain food <laughs> challenge for everybody from, from Dr. Drew Ramsey here. I, you know, Think about some anchovies or sardines, if you can tolerate those. And if you don't like those, what's a seafood that you do like with a lot of omega-3 fats? And if you can try and get that in the next couple of days, that would, that, would, that would make me happy. That would make me happy too. Okay. Then we've got nuts, beans, and seeds. Ooh, I know. Such a controversial topic these days. Every traditional diet in the world has lots of nuts, beans, and seeds in it. It's mm -hmm. because those have always been calorically dense. They store well. They've always been a, a, a real part of our, our human diet. I think there's a lot of, it's been such an anti-grain movement um, that's kind of gotten, I don't know, 
tied in with like an anti-sugar movement, an anti-processed food movement, which, uh, so there are lots of grains besides, you know, whole wheat. Right? There's all kinds of things from, from quinoa to teff. Um, and, and, uh, and then in terms of beans and seeds, you know, the top antioxidant containing food, uh, according to the USDA is the small red bean. And when it comes to just really crushing your day in terms of lots of fiber, lots of plant-based protein, there is nothing better than beans and lentils. I mean, those are really, mm-hmm. they're very filling, very satisfying, very easy. Uh, so, um, and in terms of uh, being kind of plant forward, I'm a big proponent of a lot of different animal products in terms of their nutrient power. And I would say also power in the food system for us, but you know, being able to have a nice be- rice and beans meal, that's probably a weekly a lot of rice, beans, and lots of avocado. I mean, that that's a, a weekly rotation meal for us. Uh, saute a couple of big onions in there. And it's just, you know, it's a feast of plants and fiber. That's okay. I hope everybody heard that. A feast of plants and fiber. That's that's where we want to go. Um, oh, and seeds. Hold on. Don't see sunflower seeds. Amazing source of, of, of a, a bunch of nutrients that are hard to find, like vitamin E. Pumpkin seeds, one of my absolute favorites, full of zinc, magnesium. Mm-hmm. Drop those in your pesto. Drop them in your salad. Drop them in your omelets. Pumpkin seeds, wholly underrated. Whole, and they're delicious, I happen to think. Top source of tryptophan. The neurotransmitter serotonin is made from tryptophan. So is melatonin. So, And again, if you eat more pumpkin seeds, will you sleep better? What I like, the way I approach this, is I, I think that if I'm going to sleep, I need tryptophan. And when I eat it, I, I don't know. There's something almost like I wouldn't say I'm checking a box, but I, I it just I think it does you know help me sleep better because I I really know yeah like I'm I'm getting enough of the stuff. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting the good stuff. Okay, uh, it's uh, it's good to know that you want us to eat meat because not everybody does. You you recommend if three choice. I think we- you should consider uh, how to eat healthy, sustainable meat that supports local food economy. Um, if you don't eat meat, I'm a, actually a very um, and I try to be a very neutral guy because I'm a physician. And if you don't eat meat, I don't like the idea that somehow I can't help you, treat you, work with you. I think that's not what my job is. My job is to help you. And so whether you're vegan or vegetarian or you're a carnivore or you're keto or you're intermittent fasting, if you need mental health care, which I think a lot of people do, um, our, our clinic was really designed around the basic tenets of nutritional psychiatry, which maybe separates us a little bit, that we're here to help people. And so if you're plant-based, there are some really important moves that you need to make to protect your brain and, and we're, we're help you to do that. That's your personal choice. And I think it's a difference probably because nutritional psychiatry comes out of psychiatry where we have a really firm history that puts us very in a very different stance than the rest of medicine, which we right. really value clinical neutrality. The piggy, your life is yours to live. Your choices right. are yours to make. And I'm here to help you support and do that in the healthiest way possible. But I also appreciate sometimes people make all kinds of choices for all kinds of other reasons. That open-mindedness is just very healing and empowering. I mean, there's there's many people who are, you know, you must eat in this time frame and you must eat this many, you know, exactly, you know, micrograms mm. of X, Y, Z. That's not how you are at all. I, I actually want to get back to that. Those uh, are empowering minute, but- for a lot of people. I do appreciate that. But I really think empowerment is empowering for people. And so <laughs> that's that's right. a, it's, uh, you know, yes, but, but I appreciate right. where, you know, maybe it's a little frustrating. I don't have my, you know, 
hard, fast rules. Yeah, yeah. But but there's there's a, a a relaxation about food that you bring that's very unusual amongst the people that I interview, and that you know where things are much more uh, clinical. You you. We we can come back to these categories. I want to get back to them, but I do. It's an important point, and I want to get to it. You definitely highlight food as a source of love, a source of pleasure, a source of community, a source of social interaction. Food is part of the human experience and not something to be terrified of. And I haven't heard other people speak of it as this communal life force the way you have. Well, that probably um, has to do with uh, my curiosity, but also just, I don't know, my parents went like full hippie and moved to rural Indiana in the middle of the 80s. So it's like, I don't know. You're just like dumped in the food system there where, you know, we're growing like, you know, huge gardens of tomatoes and, and, um, uh, I don't know, trying to preserve a lot of our food and they're sorting that out. But also just as I started in this work, maybe 15, 20 years ago as a resident at Columbia, um, back when there was just early data coming out about omega-3 fats and affective disorder risk and depression risk. Um, I, it was, a, for me, a time of real evolution as an eater. I was a young man. I was uh, just married. I was just starting to eat seafood. I was, uh, I grew up in really rural, poor Indiana. So I, I'm suddenly surrounded by all these like, you know, cool chefs and restaurants and people who have a whole kind of sense of culinary delight. And, and the delight. power of food. And, and New Yorkers really, and I don't know, I spent the next 20 years in New York. I became a New Yorker. And, and those those moments, enjoying food with friends and family and in restaurants and bars and, you know. <laughs> That's all, the New York experience. Just, <laughs> I don't really, really made made New York for me, made my community. And and then uh, years ago, moving back to our rural farm in Indiana, I just think uh, to me, that miracle going from a seed to food and then going from that food to human consciousness, it, it just really, it really just uh, delights me when I'm at my best. And, and, and I do think we need to have a deeper respect for it. I think in my own life, you know, having gone through college and medical school, you know, there've been a lot of periods where I've gotten farther away from these ideals and, and, and had some pretty significant consequences in terms of how I feel. So, um, but thank you, Peggy. I, I don't, um, yeah, uh, I really I appreciate your your pointing that out. I do, I, I do feel a great love of uh, you know the 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 farmers and and what rural America is really like, which I think so many people don't know, and and also a really deep love of you know all of the wild possibilities of the the fish market in New York and right. you know yeah. the, um, all of the just wisdom of people who who love food and nutrition. Well, I just became an integrative nutrition health coach. Uh, and, uh, th what we're talking about is so central to, uh, the understanding of what nutrition is that we're taught at the school, the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, and that fits with what I'm saying, what you're saying, what I feel, what you feel, which is, Food, food, the nourishment of food is only one part of the nourishment you need in life. You need, you need to be nourished in every way. You need to be nourished.
first in your relationships. You need to be, and, and, and food can be a powerful, uh, uh, glue in those relationships. You need to be nourished in your, in your career, in, in you know, how you spend your time and your creativity and your spirituality. Everything, your, your entire life should be a source of nourishment to you. And food is one of those nourishments, but by no means the only one. But food has this enormous power to uh, expand our realm of nourishment. And the other ones, we can be cre- – for instance, our creativity. We can be creative with food, our joy. We can be joyous in the way we prepare and eat and share food. Uh, and, and then that can be developed. I think the part that, you know uh, – <laughs> I don't know. That's the part for me that <clears throat> I hope people appreciate. It, it, you know, it, it wasn't a one that it's not like I, I was like this with food 20 years ago. It's not like I thought about food like this 20 years ago. It's really evolved in a very organic way for me as I've paid attention to what makes me feel good, what I care about. As you know, I, I remember the first conference I went to was a farm to cafeteria conference. I was up in Vermont. And I was definitely the only psychiatrist there, and I, but I, I, I was just so, uh, I don't know. I, I was so excited and curious and encouraged because I was there with the people who were feeding all of our kids mm. in school. And this is like the, one of the most uh, challenging times in terms of brain growth, neuronal pruning, the development of, of uh, anxiety and depression for so many people begins in these kind of early formative developmental years. And, I was this idea of like, wow, can we, can we get together and start to change food and, and seeing all the people on the grassroots level who are like doing that and excited about that. And so it, it's, uh, it's been a really treat. You know, we're, we're in this real, um, revolution and I don't think it feels that way because we haven't had a lot of, I don't know, new meds or new diagnostic techniques or all that, but we are in this big revolution of uh, how we treat and think about dementia, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very exciting time. I think we're going to have more breakthroughs and more options available to people in the next 15 years than we've ever had before in human history. It's just a very cool time. And I think the same has happened for food. I don't know where this is going to go. I mean, boy, a lot of weird places people are taking food right now. But, you know, some of those, like, I, you know, I'm a, like hands in the dirt guy. So when I see like, you know, Kimball Musk and his, his container gardens, I kind of scratch my head. But then, man, you see like you just, you just dropped like a modern farm in the middle of a food desert. Like that, that's super cool. And it's really efficient and it allows people to grow 24 seven, 365. I mean, wow. You know, so this, this mashup that we're having of food and tech and agriculture and mental health is just, I think going to lead us to some really fun places over the next little bit. Well, I agree with you, which is actually why I started this podcast, Brain Health Breakthroughs, I think we're at a time of incredible uh, development in uh, our knowledge and in the resources available to people to really understand what their brain needs and to to uh, to do something about it. So, um, okay, we're just going to finish our categories. We've got... Uh, I like I like how cognitively intact Peggy is, don't you, everyone? Yeah, she's going to like... She, you're a finisher, right? You're going to finish this. Let's finish oh, this thank list. thank you. We're totally, we've, we've been through it. So I want to recap, you know, I've got my little rhyme, seafood greens, nuts and beans. Yeah, well, I was going to get to your rhyme. Don't think I was going to get chocolate. Let, so, <laughs> and we've been through leafy greens, rainbow vegetables. But we've, we, we have, we've done meat, but we haven't done eggs and dairy and dark 
chocolate, so I just want people to appreciate those. And we haven't done fermented for, foods, really. So fermented foods egg, are so important, personally, eggs I think. And dairy, let me just quickly. So eggs, you know, eggs are one of those controversial foods. Having trained as a conventional a physician, I trained at Indiana University, one of the you know, preeminent cardiology programs in the country, really amazing, amazing institution. And you know, the idea is cholesterol is bad, eggs are bad, avoid them. And so is fat and saturated fat. And I just saw what that does to people. It causes people to eat processed foods that say no cholesterol. And that's what it did to me. I was a medical student. I was like eating snack oil cookies mm-hmm. and uh, uh, veggie burgers mm-hmm. and kind of looking down my nose at everybody else. I was one of those obnoxious <laughs> vegetarians back then. So I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. Uh, and so, you know, eggs, I think, present a number of opportunities for us. First of all, they op- uh, they, if you live someplace who you can do this, they, they present the opportunity to have a relationship with chickens and, and chickens are really in, incredible animals. For a long time, I didn't eat chicken just because I love eggs and I love chickens. And, and if you're a small farm or you have a little small farm, like when you put chickens on your farm, it just transforms the farm for a number oh. of reasons. One, they're making eggs for you and, uh, farm fresh eggs. They have these dark rich yolks. They're full of uh, beta carotene and they have both B9 and B12. If you think about it, everything you need to make a brain cell is in an egg because mm-hmm. there's nothing else in there and a whole brain comes out. Isn't right. that amazing? Right. And, and so not that you should only eat on eggs, but it just feels like for people, especially as folks, some folks are trying to maybe decrease certain things that are hard to decrease. Like oftentimes people are really attached to eating a lot of red meat. And so adding in some other um, very satiating, um, very uh, nutrient protein dense foods like eggs, also diversifying how you use it. And most people have eggs for breakfast, mm-hmm. but in, in all of my books, I have a frittata and egg pie, which is just amazing to make for, for dinner, to reheat for a lunch, to pack in a lunch. Um, there's, you know, we have a, a number of ways that, again, you bump up the nutrient density. There's a great, great egg dishes in all of my books. In terms of dairy, I just think there's a lot of controversy about dairy, a lot of ideas that all dairy is inflammatory, that like no mammals drink milk after birth. I'm like, you know, no mammals walk around with like cell phones and drive Teslas either. I mean, I, just, I don't <laughs> I think some of those arguments are just Good kind point. of ridiculous <laughs> and not very scientifically based. Lots of people have sensitivities to dairy. There's allergies to dairy. It's one of the common allergens, as are all of my brain foods, right? One of the most common allergens, nuts, seafood, eggs. <laughs> eggs. So, <laughs> yes. um, you know, and not to dismiss those or laugh about those, but just to say we, we want to approach a food from thinking about what is the actual data in terms of how, when consumed in the healthiest form possible, it affects our health. And if you look at a lot of what's pushed for dairy, it's low fat or no fat dairy where it's kind of sugar protein water. And it, it, it's, um, as compared to something like a whole fat kefir. Now this is a fermented dairy where a lot of the lactose has been eaten up, has been made into a variety of things by these quote unquote good bugs. Plus you're also drinking in live bacteria, which we know is really a key thing for taking care of your microbiome, your, your immune health, and, and probably likely your cognitive and emotional health is I think what we're going to understand in the data. So, you know, think about those two different dairy products. Think about like dairy is like a low fat flavored yogurt. Now that's like a sugar bomb, right? It's like, that's like 30, right. 40 grams of sugar sometimes. Right. It's some weird flavor that's full of food dye. It's going to mess up your palate. I mean, so that's not really dairy in my mind. Right. You know, um, I, I do think there's a point a lot of people are living on, uh, you know, basically gluten in the form of pasta and bread, dairy in the form of lattes and milkshakes. Right. <laughs> um, and, and a few other foods and, and, 
and getting folks to diversify, move towards fermented um, is really one of my advices and grass fed, right? So there's this nutrient in grass fed dairy conjugated linoleic acid, which is a very interesting molecule. I don't have time to get into now, but something that more in terms of helping create people create more muscular, leaner bodies, there's some data that CLA can help. So those, those are um, my thoughts. And in terms of both with meat and, and dairy and eggs, I just really encourage people to think about pasture raised, small farm, local sources. Why? Mm-hmm. One, they have more nutrients. Two, they're beyond organic often. And three, I want you to go to the farmer's market. Because I think when you go to the farmer's market, you interact with the people who make your food, grow your food, you shake their hands, you pay them. Uh, something magical happens. I, the farmer's markets really, really helped my mental health when I was living in New York City. I, I would, I was like, wake up on a Saturday. It's great farmer's markets. Where Fifty Shades of Kale, my second book, came from is uh, uh, Abington Square Park down in the West Village of New York City. I, I, it was right outside our door for a long time. Uh, and I, I'd walk down there and, and talk to the farmers and uh, and and try out all kinds of new vegetables to see the diversity and creativity and just a wonderful place to go. So, and then we talked a little bit about fermented foods, but I just, you know, whether it's kombucha or miso or a kefir, again, the one that I've been recommending throughout the, the, the podcast, getting more fermented foods in your diet is also just a really great goal to have in terms of preserving mental health. And then there's dark chocolate. Dark chocolate is just a great brain food. People think it's a marketing gimmick. It's not a marketing gimmick. Dark chocolate is, first of all, nutrient dense. Lots of fiber, lots of iron, lots of magnesium. Secondly, dark chocolate is packed with flavanols. These are phytonutrients. And and it's one of the only molecules of flavanols in dark chocolate in a concentrated form. There's a study out of Columbia by Scott Small that they reversed age-related memory decline. And they supported this both with MRN data uh, MRI data, but also with uh, a specific neuropsychological test looking at, at specific areas of the brain. And so, um, uh, you know, it's probably a little bit of a stretch to say that applies to a dark chocolate bar, but it excites me that I'm eating molecules that in some studies show they might preserve my brain. People who eat daily dark chocolate have a significantly decreased risk of depression, like a 60% decreased risk. Wow. It's correlational data, so that's not causative, but well, it's kind of curious. When you look at studies of what happens when people eat dark chocolate, you increase blood flow to the brain. And then dark chocolate is kind of naturally mood lifting, just binds to a lot of receptors. Theobromines are very stimulated in terms of like dopamine. And so there's kind of a little more motivation, a little more energy. There's the pleasure, right? I, I recommend people eat dark chocolate really slowly. Put it in your mouth, suck on it, think good thoughts, let it wash over you, really enjoy it, have a central experience with it. Um, uh, you know, it's just such a different experience than somebody having a big bowl of, I don't know, low fat frozen yogurt, chocolate stuff, right? That's just, <laughs> right. those right. are two totally different nutritional right. experiences. And, and I think the different affective, emotional, spiritual experiences as an eater, you know, it just, uh, not, not that I'm against some good dark chocolate ice cream, but, but just that, um, separating out the garbage chocolate, the white chocolate, the chocolate with all the toffee bits and caramel from in a real brain food chocolate, which is going to be more than 70, I'd say more than 80% cacao, or it's going to be like this right here. This is my, these are my favorite cacao nibs, very special secret mm-hmm. rainforest ranch. I'm going to not tell you the name of, <laughs> uh, but I'll dump these on my yogurt. I'll dump them in mm-hmm. my smoothie. If I look at my smoothie and I think, Ooh, a little sugar bomb here. I'll drop in some cacao nibs. 
and a bunch of cinnamon um, and, and have a kind of chunkier because it's lots of fiber and cacao nibs. Um, so yeah, expand your dark chocolate game, get more cacao nibs or cacao beans in your diet. See what happens when you snack on them. Beware of it late at night if you're using a lot just because they can be stimulating. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and don't don't think about it as like your guilty treat. Think about it as a tool for nutritional empowerment to feed your brain would be my request, if possible. Dr. Ramsey, uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, I'm already plotting to invite you back to talk some more. I'll come back. Do you just say so, I'm like one of your first guests? That's like such an honor, yeah, Peggy. Yeah, you, you are the very first guest. So, well, so everybody we're welcome to the- Peggy's podcast. First, let's just give a hand for Peggy. Peggy, thanks for starting a podcast about brain health breakthroughs. I really wish you the absolute most success. I hope everybody listening is really excited for all the special guests that Peggy has to come. Peggy's really dialed in in the Alzheimer's and dementia community. And so she's going to have the, the best guests on here, I'm sure. And I'm just absolutely flattered to be your first guest. I hope everybody hears my encouragement. Number one, no matter where you are, who you are, what budget you have, where you are in your life, to be taking care of your mental health, to mm-hmm. if you're really feeling down about that, to just lift your head up a little bit. Um, Peggy and I have been in all kinds of very, very hard, strange corners in our lives when it comes to our mental health is my sense from this conversation. And I think both of us, if you're listening and struggling, want you to know that there are better things ahead and you keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep taking care of yourself, no matter how you feel, uh, things will improve and to get help when you need it for sure. I think you hear both of us, uh, noting that, but also to realize you you have a lot of power in your actions when it comes to your mental health and your brain health. And I don't want this list of foods in any way to feel overwhelming to people or to feel like if you're depressed and you didn't eat these foods, you should feel guilty. Or if you're depressed and you do eat these foods, everything will get better. But I want you to hear that you have a lot of power and it might require some new habits, it might require some some coaching. Um, uh, uh, but I, I, I hope you hear our encouragement to take those steps, take care of your brain. Definitely the best asset you have. Most beautiful thing about you. Sexiest thing about you. Definitely yes. my favorite thing about you. I don't even know you. My favorite thing about you is your brain. And, <laughs> and, and, and I wish you all the best in this, this year, this, this really, uh, powerful year for us, 2022, thinking about how do we recover? How do we be ambitious and and uh, in our goals for ourselves and for others? Um, how do we move forward after uh, such so much tragedy and with so much uncertainty? And and those are big questions. So taking care of your brain and your mental health, I hope, will help you in that. God bless you for that, Doctor Ramsey. God bless you for bringing so much compassion and humanity, humaneness, the to to these. Very difficult issues, these troubling issues, uh, and there's, which there's so much tension around. How do we eat? There's so much anxiety and tension. And you bring the power of, uh, pleasure and the power of so being with other people through food. And you take away so much anxiety and empower us to, to optimize our brains. So please keep doing what you're doing. I'll follow your work, uh, very closely. And, uh, how can people find you? Where, where, where are, where are you hanging out on social media and elsewhere? Well, thank you so much for those kind words first, Peggy. I really appreciate that, especially with somebody uh, with the life experience and the perspective that you have. And so it it means a lot to me and I really 
sets me in a good place, helps put those things in my self-esteem bank, bank and it <laughs> good, helps me do. as I'm thinking about 2022. I'm easy to find. Um, Peggy mentioned IIN. If you're interested in becoming a coach, I'm on their faculty now and part of their new curriculum that's coming out in 2022. And um, uh, uh, and if you uh, mention my name or Peggy's name, you'll, you'll get a big friends and family discount. So, so please, if you're interested, um, utilize that resource and that discount. In terms of me, I'm easy to find. I'm Drew Ramsey, MD. I'm on Instagram. My website's drewramseymd.com. I have some really fun free resources on the site, like how to do brain food on a budget. One of the resources our team developed this year to really help with that question of like, hey, this sounds great. How do we afford wild salmon and anchovies? And so we answer those questions and show people how on a few hundred dollars a month, you can really start eating brain food and adding those foods in. We also have our Friday Feels newsletter. It comes out every Friday where we try to highlight the best science going on and some of what we're reading and, and some of the recipes that our team's making to help us feed our brains, to take care of our mental health. And so those are all the ways to, to find us. We also have a couple of e-courses for people who are interested. Uh, if you're a clinician, we have the, our nutritional psychiatry e-course. It's really the, the most robust way to learn about nutritional psychiatry. It's about 10 hours of content, all of the research, um, and, and talking about clinical technique, uh, as well as healing the modern brain. Healing the modern brain is, is, uh, really the most ambitious project we've undertaken, which is a, is a, a course on mental fitness to really help individuals think about actionable steps in terms of what's missing in their life and contributing to depression and anxiety in my clinical experience for so many of my patients. And, and what are the kind of actionable steps to, to go, going on those? So. That, that's what's been going on for us in terms of what we've been developing for people and, uh, and, and how you can find us. And Peggy, thank you so much for the opportunity to share with individuals who care about the brain health and, and for everyone who's still listening. Thank you so much for all of your, your time and your attention. I really, I hope this conversation sticks with you in the best of ways and, and really helps you uh, take care of yourself. And, you know, for all of you listening who have great mental health, really, you know, encourages you to play that forward, pass that along, reach out. You know, if you have mental health, it's such a wonderful thing to share with other people. And so uh, thanks, Peggy. It's been a really wonderful talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramsey. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter, Brain Health Breakthroughs, just click on the links in the description below. You're listening to Brain Health Breakthroughs, where we help you get smarter, think faster, remember more.